We're still in a series on fighting for the family. And I uh, want to talk a little bit today at the very start about some medical history that you probably don't know about. Uh, for the first 1850 years of um, at least A.D., um, there was something, um, we didn't really understand why disease happened. And uh, finally, somebody came up with something that was called, back then anyway, spontane- spontaneous generation. And it was, it was thought that uh, living organisms that would cause disease can, can just spring up out of nowhere. Um, uh, that from a non-living organism, you can get a living organism spontaneously. And so somehow, um, disease just spontaneously generated itself. And so this explained for many, many years why we have disease. It just came up at random and a disease inside of my body could just come up in random or providential, or even somehow it could have been God's will that I would get that disease. And no one understood anything like we do today because in about the late 1800s, Dr. Louis Pasteur said, there is an unseen world out there that we don't see and someone later gave those, uh, that unseen world, at least medically, uh, uh, the name of germs. And germs are cause disease. And germs can be unseen in the air and just kind of flying around. And they can be on somebody's skin. And you can transmit germs when you shake hands. And you can transmit germs if you drink out of, out of after someone. And, and uh, so he said, there's this unseen world. It's just not... These living organisms that cause disease can't just spring up somewhere. There's a cause for that and what's later got named germs. And uh, people just made fun of him. People thought it was the weirdest thing in the world that, that something from unseen could somehow enter the seen world. And so people ridiculed that. Um, and, but year after year, as he continued to pound away, people accepted that. And they started doing weird things like... Um, wash their hands. And doctors started doing weird things like uh, putting gloves on uh, for surgery. They started doing weird things in homes like when your kid had the flu, you wouldn't let him uh, bunk in the same room with the other child because we learned that germs could be transmitted. And we, get, we take this for granted right now. They didn't know it. They didn't know it in the mid-1800s. We, quarant- we started quarantining people because we learned on the transmissions of germs. We learned that there was this unseen world out there. Now, can I tell you that in the Christian life, there's an unseen world. We don't know all about it. Bible gives us some clues, but there's an unseen world. And when we, it's hard to talk about a fight for the family without talking about somehow talking about the, the fight with the unseen powers of this world. And of course, I'm talking about devil, Satan, whatever, the enemy, whatever name you two want to put on him. Bible gives us some clues that he was once an angel and exercised his free will and somehow fell from heaven and took a bunch of angels with him and don't really know much about that. And, but there is an unseen world uh, out there that is um, the rulers and principalities of this world, the Bible calls it. Powers of spiritual darkness. This is the second time in 22 years <laughs> uh, that I have preached a message about this. And that's probably been my fault. But it's also um, a little bit in me that wants to put a whole lot more attention on putting your eyes on Jesus instead of putting your eyes on the unseen world. I think a whole lot of people have their eyes on the unseen world. Hey, it's, it's, it's real, um, but I, I think a lot of people have their eyes on the enemy and what he's doing and get your eyes off Jesus. That's only going to get the enemy a foothold in your life. Bible says he's a defeated foe, but he's still a foe. C.S. Lewis said there's two great problems in any kind of teaching about this unseen world, um, the devil, Satan, his demons, whatever. And one is a teaching that it does not exist. And the other is a teaching that um, just devil is under every single rock. And I run out of gas today. It's because the devil 
maybe run out of gas. And um, devil's behind everything. And if I ran out of gas, because I, I I'm a nut. You know, I didn't put gas in my car, okay? But we had these two big polar opposite things, and both are wrong. Both are wrong. And I'm going to try today to give you a more balanced understanding about this unforeseen world. One thing that's always kind of bugged me, and I, I, I absolutely understand that I can lean too much on the intellectual side of Christianity and not as much maybe on the emotional side of that. I, I get that a thousand percent. That's my personality and people are all different. But one thing that really bugs me on, on this side that sees the devil under every single rock is, is that people that just go around everywhere and rebuking the devil and, and just casting him out. And and I know that that can happen sometimes and that can be reality, but if I have the power to rebuke the devil and cast him out and he must flee, why am I wasting my time here this morning? Why, why am I not downtown Dayton in, in the crack houses and, and where heroin is so prolific down there? Why am I just not walking the streets where the devil has just got people bound? If I have the power to rebuke him and he will leave, how selfish of me not to use that power 24 hours a day. <laughs> now, is there, is there maybe something to that? I guess so. But if, if truly I have that power, I just feel like, see y'all later. I'm going to use that and help some people more than I'm helping you all this morning. You know? Now, maybe that's too intellectual for me and, and, and I... I and I need to maybe come a little ways the other way, but that's at least I'm being honest in what goes on in my mind, okay? So I want to give you a balanced approach this morning. I guess the best place to start is at the start, right? And that back to Genesis. And we see in Genesis chapter 3, um, all of a sudden a serpent appears. We're not sure. Uh, at least the, it doesn't tell us in 1, 2, and 3 of Genesis why the serpent. It just shows up. And that's the first chapter. We end chapter two and everything is cool, man. Everything is hunky-dory and they're in paradise and it's great. But all of a sudden we start this chapter three and we have this verse. It doesn't tell us who this serpent is. It doesn't tell us where the serpent came from. It just says he's there. And we learn a little bit. About, we learn later on more as you continue to read through the Bible. But we learn a little bit right here in Genesis chapter three about the enemy referred to here as a serpent and, and who he is and, and, and what he does. Because he says in Genesis 3.1, the Bible says, now the serpent was more crafty. Um, Paul talks about someplace, he talks about the wiles of the devil. Uh, he is certainly a crafty person and um, he was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, what's the enemy doing here? He's distorting what God said. God didn't say you can't eat from any tree in the garden. God said there's this one tree in the middle. Basically, God says all this right here, all these trees, they're yours. But there's this one tree right here. Don't touch it. For if you touch it, you will surely die. So what's the enemy doing? The enemy is distorting God's word. Okay? Now, can I tell you something? The enemy knows God's word better than any of us do. He knows our word, God's word, better than any of us. And he will use it. And he will use it against us. Just like sometimes, I was joking with somebody this week. They were talking about how unbelievers were getting them on, getting on them about this Christian about something. Unbelievers know God's word, <laughs> you know, and they'll call you on it. <laughs> and and the, the enemy knows God's word, but he'll take it and distort it just a little bit. OK, and 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 there's enough truth in that to make you stop and think or if you don't know God's word well enough to make you. Yeah, really believe that. And I would say some of you here may not even even have known the truth here, but the Bible says, as John 8, I think, that, that, that you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. And the only way that you can battle against distortions of his word and the only way you can battle against him deceiving you in any way is to know the truth. And he will come and distort God's word. If you're a, if you're a Christian that 
uh, understands God's word and has known God's word and has applied it in your heart and mind and has memorized God's word, he can't come to you with an out and out lie. He can't. But maybe he could twist it a little bit. Maybe he could distort it a little bit. In any of any, and even those of us who have lived with God's word for a while can be deceived by the distortion of God's word. So Genesis 3.1 simply says that he will take it and tweak it and twist it and distort God's word. Now go to Genesis 3.4, just a few verses down. And the, the woman responds to him and basically said, yeah, well, he didn't say we could eat from any. He said that, that you know, this is one tree. If we eat from it, we will certainly die. And here he comes and goes, you will not certainly die, the serpent says. You will not surely die, another translation says. And here he comes out and flat out lies. Flat out lies. You will not certainly die die. And the Bible says that, that the enemy is the father of lies. And his biggest weapon, not his only weapon, but by far and large, the biggest weapon that he has is that he is a liar. And he, and how those, how do those lies get in your head, Mark? I have no clue. I mean, how does something just pop in my head? How do I hear that lie? Don't ask me. I don't know. I don't think anybody knows the answer to that. But we hear lies. And the only way to combat lies is to know the truth. And so that's why being in a church service, hearing the word preached to you, having uh, a knowledge yourself, not only what a preacher would tell you, having a knowledge yourself of God's word, that is the number one way and, and, uh, that you can fight lies coming into your life is that you know that that lie is a lie and that you can battle it with the truth. It's what Jesus did in Matthew chapter 4. And when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, every, he didn't... He just didn't say, I rebuke you, leave me. He didn't cast, he could have, I guess he could have casted him out. I mean, I guess he could have done it. He didn't do that. What did he do? All three lies, what did he do? He hit him with truth. He hit him with truth. And he hit him with truth. And the Bible says that the enemy fled. He resisted him with truth. He stood his ground with truth. He stood his ground with truth. So, Friends, he's a liar. And there's been times in the context of family in the marriage counseling room that one of the two partners have said something, and maybe I should have said it. And, and maybe now as a 59-year-old, I'm getting bolder, or, or maybe I'm just more rude than I've ever been. I don't know what it is. But sometimes I just want to say, that's a lie from the pit of hell. I do. You know what? Because it is. And they've bought into it. They have somehow believed that. And that's always a function of not knowing the truth themselves. So what, what's a big reason for discipleship? What's a big reason for maturing in the faith is so that you will know the truth. And also so you will know lies when you hear them and can resist them with the truth. Also, it's subtle in here, but, he said, but the serpent says, you won't surely die. There's a subtle knock at God's holiness there. That God somehow can, can wink at sin. That God somehow can put up with sin. That God somehow is not as hard on sin as we think he would be hard on. He said, you will not surely die. There's a subtle, subtle jab there at God's holiness. That God is just the great grandfather in the sky. and He'll slip you in the back door of heaven, you know. There's one more thing, just the next verse in Genesis 3, 5. Enemy continues to talk here, talking to, the, 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 talking to Eve. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. He, he, he subtly here goes after the character of God. God is holding out on you. God is holding back from you because if you eat from this tree... Man, you're going to be like God. Now, we are in some ways creating his image. 
but not in the way that the enemy was trying to infer here. You, God's holding back on you. Why, why would God do that other than the fact that he's not good? And is there any more blasphemous slam at God than to somehow insinuate that he's not good? Because it's the basis of all that he is, is that he is good. And he operates in a good way in all of his dealings with you and all of his dealings with me. And the enemy somehow comes and takes a slap at the character of God. He's holding back on you because he knows if you eat that, then you'll kind of be like him. You'll know good from evil. And almost like you'll kind of be like him. You don't need him. So, I mean, three right here in five verses, we have a distortion of God's truth. We have an out and out lie. And then we have the enemy trying to somehow discount the character of God. And God is not as, as good as he said. He's holding out on you. Now, if you've been in the Christian life very long, you, um, you've experienced this. You've heard this. You've had to battle this. You may have fallen for some of his schemes in this way. He's after the family because the family is, is well, he's after the family for a lot of reasons, but here's why I think is, is the number one reason. The family is the main place biblically that discipleship should happen. Okay? Discipleship should happen in a whole lot of places. I get that. But if you look biblically, the main place that the faith should be passed on is within the family. That's the number one place. And if he can get into the family, he's getting at the very root of passing on your faith from one generation to another. He's getting, on, he's getting in the very root of discipleship, the very root of you trying to grow up in your faith. If you've accepted Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life, and, and he, he, he may think that he's kind of lost you on that end, but he can sure make your Christian life miserable or sure make you doubt and make you end up turn away and make you not believe. And he can get into his family. He gets into the very core of the place where discipleship is supposed to happen in a biblical understanding. Now, I think there's probably other reasons he's at the family, but I think that is number one. This is where it happens as, as father and mother raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. There is no, no substitute for that. And many of you can sit and testify here that you were raised in a Christian home and you tried to get away from it, but you could not because it got embedded early in you. And what gets embedded early in you is hard to get out. And you may not have responded early in your life. You may have responded later, but you see, you had that root in you. And some of you did respond early. Some of you did respond early and how grateful you are that your parents guided you in that direction and saved you from some of the mess that the rest of us had to go through that were more hard-headed. Because family is... It's, it's the place, man. I'm so thankful you bring your kids to church and I'm so thankful that all of us that as part of this church can assist you, mom and dads, and do what we can to help you and empower you. I, I, I'm, I'm grateful for that. Well, it doesn't take the place of what goes on the other six and nine-tenths days. <laughs> that you're not in this house. Someone a long time ago, I've, I've, I've had this quote a long time. I've never had an opportunity to use it. And I didn't write this, and I don't know who to give it credit for. It was just something in my files. The devil will exaggerate your mate's failures and inadequacies. So suspicion and jealousy. Indulge your self-pity. Oh, I think he loves that. I think he loves to get you feeling sorry for yourself. And just feeds that. I think he sees that, that self-pity as a beast that he can feed and feed and feed and feed. That other people have it better than you. Other families are better than Other husbands are better than mine. Other wives are better than mine. 
And I think, man, when he seizes on that, he just feeds it and feeds it and blows it up till it becomes a monster. And no one understands you, do they? Because no one's got it as bad as you. Uh, the, the Bible says, the truth is, the truth is, there's no temptation that has overcome you that is not common to man. It's common, okay? We, we, we all go through stuff. But the devil loves it when I feel sorry for myself. Loves it when I feel sorry for myself because I'm so misunderstood. And of course, we all can be misunderstood. But the de- giving the devil a foothold where scripture talks to us in other places, my self-pity can really give him a foothold. Can really, really give him a foothold. So I indulge my self-pity, insist that you deserve something better, and hold out the hollow promise that things will be better with someone else. He's a liar. He's a liar. He's just a liar. And it takes maturing in the Christian life, knowing truth to understand Lie from truth. It takes maturity to stand on the truth as Jesus did in the garden. It takes maturity, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, when he's talking about the devil's schemes, he says four times to stand. And how do you stand? You stand with the belt place, belt of truth. Let's um, talk about a little, some of his lies. A couple of weeks ago, I, I talked about some of these in a different way. I talked about them worldly thinking, but worldly thinking is, is lies of the devil. I didn't want to introduce it back then because the whole sermon was on patterns of this world and didn't want to introduce the enemy in that and kind of confuse things. But uh, here are some lies of the devil. These first three have to do with marriage. Okay, have to do with marriage. Love means never having to say you're sorry or other assorted nonsense from movies about love and marriage, Okay. I, or I, I put that last part in there, okay? Uh, what was, it, was it the love story? Okay. Some of you are too young to remember the love. That was probably back in the 70s, wasn't it? Something like that. Uh, Ryan O'Neill and somebody, Allie McGraw maybe, am I close? Love means never having to say you're sorry. What hogwash that is. And see, the, the, the subtle thing behind that is, is that marriage is all wine and roses. Marriage is just wine. And if you, if you find the right one, marriage is just like, Wee, we just dance here. <laughs> Marriage is hard. Any two people living together is hard. When I, before I got married, I, I lived with some roommates and we shared, you know, apartment expenses and all. It was hard. We didn't see eye to eye on everything and he bugged me and I bugged him. I mean, just anybody living together is hard. Family's not easy to live with your brother, is it? <laughs> or your sister. And it, this, this nonsense that comes from from fiction, okay, this nonsense that comes from movies that, that their only thing there is to pull on your heartstrings and just make you cry. <laughs> An elevated view of what marriage is is a, is, is a, a lie. I'm, I'm so glad. I'm so glad I'm married to Sue and and. and and there, there are some really good times, but there's some times it's just hard because she can be a booger sometimes. <laughs> she's, not, she's not in here. Is she? It'll get back to her, I know. You, you always squeal on me. I know you will. So I said that in that way just for a romanticized understanding of marriage, a romanticized fictional account that, man, I just tell you, we're just... Everything will be perfect and if it's and just because I love you and you love me and it just won't be that way. Okay? Here's another lie about marriage. That love is just a feeling. 
Okay? I'm so thankful for the feelings of love. I, 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 I experience those. There's sometimes I look at Sue and, and man, I'll just be overcome with the feelings of love. I don't know how you define that, you know, but you know what I'm talking about. Just the feel. I look at my boy sometimes and I just be overwhelmed with the feelings of love that I have from him. And then sometimes I look at him and just go, eh. You know, and I'm sure they look at me and, eh, and Sue looks at me sometimes and, you know, but, but love is just not about the feelings. Feelings come and feelings go. And I've told you a hundred times, it's like an ocean and the water comes in and just knocks you down and you just overwhelm with the feelings of love. But then it goes out again. <laughs> and then it comes back again and then it goes out again. And if, if, and if my relationship is based on my feelings, then I'm going to be hot and cold and up and down and over and under and there'll be nothing stable there, solid there. Love, love is not just a feeling. Thank God for the feelings that are there, but it's just not a feeling. And if I have to sit in the marriage counseling room one more time and hear a husband or a wife say this, I think I'll scream. I've heard it, I don't know how many times in 22 years I've heard it. Well, I love her. I just don't feel in love with her. I just want to slap them. <laughs> but they tell you in seminary not to do that. Because the Bible says love is not a feeling. The Bible says love is an act. Love is an action. And I could go to many places to show this, but let's just go to the love chapter. I read it yesterday at the, at the wedding and preached about five or six minutes on it. Okay? Here's what the Bible says about love. Love is patient. I don't have to have any emotional attachment to you at all, and I can still be patient with you. I have to have no feelings of love, no feelings of friendship, no feelings about you at all, but I can still, if I choose to, be patient with you without any kind of feelings that would make me want to be patient with you. I can do the same thing about kindness. I don't have to even like you to be kind to you, right? And I mean... We see that all the time. They go in Walmart and they give you that little cheesy little smile and thank you for coming and stuff. And they don't know me and they don't like me, but they just being kind because they get paid to be kind. It's not a feeling. They're not doing it because they love me. They're not doing it because they're Christian and they're supposed to love God and love other people. They're just doing it. Love is not just a feeling. And when, it, when Paul defines love, he says it has nothing to do with feelings. It has everything to do with the way I act. And love is patient and love is kind. And it does not envy, it does not boast, and it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. And it keeps no record of wrongs. Now this is where I always camp out in weddings. And I look at the groom, I said, like I did yesterday, I said, Dakota, Victoria's a good old girl and you're getting a good girl here. I said, you know what though? She's going to wrong you. She's going to wrong you. And, 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 and Victoria, you're getting a good old boy here. Good catch on Dakota. But you know what? He's going to wrong you. It may be a big wrong. It may be a smaller wrong. I don't know what it may be. And when, when we're wronged in marriage, we have an opportunity then. I can keep a record of that or I can choose to love. Because the Bible says that love keeps no record of wrongs. Now, let me tell you about 22 years of marriage counseling. I bet, I bet Mike could say it as well, and he's got over 30 years and Harold's got a bunch too. The common denominator 
of couples that have sat in front of us in the marriage counseling room is that one or both of them are record keepers. One, it just takes one to have marriage problems. One or both of them are record keepers. And so they'll tell me some of their issues and da 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 And I'll say, well, you know, how long, when did that happen? They say it was six years ago. When I wrong Sue, when she wrongs me, we have an opportunity. I can become a record keeper or I can make the decision to love her. And if I love her, I keep no record of that wrong. Now, that doesn't mean that every wrong, I mean, some wrongs are severe. I know that. Okay. And so some wrongs are just like everyday wrongs, a little pet peeve or something that just got on your nerves. You know, you don't have to have discussions about that. You just overlook that. Right. But there's some wrongs that you have to have a come to Jesus meeting about. I mean, you have to sit down and you have to talk through. But all that is the process of keeping no record of wrongs. And so as I keep no record of wrongs, I'm choosing in a very deliberate way to love my wife. And she is choosing in a very deliberate way. The Bible says, Ephesians 4, maybe 26, 27, says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. So if I let the sun go down on my anger, that means not resolve the difficulty. Then it piles up and piles up, piles up, piles up and piles up. It's a whole lot easier to get over the wrongs when it's a little stack. It's a whole lot harder, if not sometimes impossible, to get over it when it's bigger. And people who have let these wrongs pile up for years and years and years, they are full. They are full of bitterness. They are full of anger. And that presents a wall inside of them that makes it hard for the Holy Spirit to penetrate. Bible says, love keeps no record of wrongs. It also continues, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, always hangs in there. Knowing it will not always be easy. Love doesn't quit. Well, I don't feel in love with him anymore. Love perseveres. Love doesn't quit. Love hangs in there. Jen, were you able to, to get that? Can, can you see that right there? That says it's dark. I know it's dark. Love is caring for each other even when you're angry. So you got Mama and Papa here sitting on the bench. And they're mad at one another and they're faced other directions. But it's raining and he's going to love her. <laughs> okay, there's stuff that happens in families that may make you want to sit on the bench and face the other direction. But I still love them. And that feeling of anger that's rising, I'm going to get over that. I may have to, we have to talk. We may have to have some conversation. We may have to go get some people to help us. But we're going to get over that because we're not going to let the sun go down on our anger. We're not going to let this stuff pile up and pile up and pile up. Let me give you one more on marriage that is really important. This is a lie. My private immorality will not affect my marriage. Now, there's a lot of application to this, but the number one is pornography. My private internet life will not affect my marriage. Lie. Don't ask me to explain it. Don't ask me how pornography gets in you and warps you and changes the way you think and changes the way you look at your spouse, changes the way you understand sex. I don't understand that. I don't understand that. I just know it's true. And there's other things that be, could be counted as private immorality. If you're in an intimate relationship with another person, it's hard to keep secrets. 
Now, you may never ever come from your mouth what that is, but that'll show up in your life. It'll show up in your body language. It'll show up in a lack of patience. It'll show up in festering anger. You're really mad at yourself, but it'll come out that you're mad at your wife. My private immorality will not affect my marriage is a lie. It's a lie. It's a lie. Listen, you are one flesh. couple of lies about parenting up here. What do we have, Jen? All right. If I just give my kids more, 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 if we can just, if I can just work and have a better salary and I can take them on nicer vacations, we can afford a nicer house with that basement, with that pool table and all that kind of stuff down there. If I can just do all that more, more, more will make our family better. We'll solve our problems, better vacations. Oh, my, Christopher will hate that I say this. New video game. More, more, more. In my 22 years of ministry, the number of families that I've known that live pretty frugally, but still enjoyed rich, rich family life are plenty. And the numbers of families that had a lot and had very shallow family life are plenty as well. It's a lie. And, and, and all the advertising in the world, are the billions that are spent to make you believe that. More, more, more will make you a better parent. Giving your kids more experiences, more of this, more soccer teams, more this, more that. There's nothing wrong with soccer teams. There's nothing wrong with basketball. There's nothing wrong with that. But more, 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 more will make our family better. It's a lie. What about the next one that has to do with parenting? Your children are more important than your marriage. This strikes at us a little wrong, doesn't it? I don't think I've ever found a well-adjusted family without a well-adjusted marriage at the center of that. I don't think I've ever found it. Now, you know, I, I have found families that make the best of the situations. Had a divorce, you got step here, step there. I found families that have worked hard to make the best of the situation, and God bless them as they're working hard to get over that, Okay. But I have never, ever found a family that's hitting on all, I mean, I'm talking about it in a Christian way, that's hitting on all cylinders, that got it going in a Christian way, that at the center of that, at the core of that, is not a well-adjusted relationship with mom and dad. Not just a well-adjusted dad who's got relationships with his kids and a well-adjusted mom that has relationship with her kids. It's a well-adjusted mom and dad that have relationship with each other. And from that flows everything else in the family. It starts here with the one flesh business. And everything flows from that. There's tremendous security in your family when your kids know that mom and dad are in this for life. Because as I told you a couple weeks ago, I think some kids, because of what they see, are just waiting for the other shoe to fall and waiting for that divorce to happen. And they need to be told that it doesn't have to be that way. Is there one more lie when it has to do with parenting? Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, here's where I think this lie really rears its ugly head. I think it has to do with our pride. Because if I'm a really good Christian, then my kids should behave and I'll have them in line. And when they don't, it really bothers me because it eats at my pride and somebody saw that and so I overreact in some way in discipline the children because my pride is, because I'm a pastor. I mean, I'm a pastor. I should know all this, right? And, and my boys should 
because I know all this, that means I practice every single bit of it perfectly in my life. And if I practice it perfectly, it means that Christopher and Levi don't have a free will of their own. And so when, but when they do act up and some of you all see it, man, something can rear in me and it's not of God. And I can overreact in my discipline of them because I'm embarrassed because you saw something that I didn't think you should see because I'm a pastor. I'm a good Christian. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Hey, friends. We all have struggles. They're, they're little boogers, man. I mean, they're hard, right? They have a free will of their own. And it battles against us. If kids just... Because you were a great Christian, had a great relationship with Jesus, just automatically were great kids. And Paul wouldn't have had to tell them to obey your parents. It wouldn't have had to be one of the top ten. Don't let pride get in there. I've got one here that has to do with uh, singles, I think. It's the lie of finding the one. There's one out there. And she probably lives in the middle of cornfield in South Dakota, but I'm going to find her. <laughs> that romanticized finding the girl or the guy of your dreams. Okay, here's what I understand the Bible to say. And here's what I understand of, of being a pastor for 22 years. God wants you to marry a Christian, someone that you're compatible with spiritually. Okay, this is, that's an overarching umbrella. He wants to, you to marry someone you're attracted to. You're attracted to them uh, sexually. You're attracted to their personality. Uh, it's just, that's just common sense. Or he wouldn't have put the Song of Solomon in there, okay? But other than that, there's a whole bunch of choice that gets involved in it. And I think when you talk about people that are Christian, people that I can be attracted to relationally and physically, could be probably a whole lot of people that would fall under, not just that one person under a haystack in South Dakota, okay? And I sometimes have seen singles that are afraid to pull the trigger on marriage because they don't know if she's the one that God has sovereignly, divinely, before the foundation of the world, picked out for me. And I don't know if I see that in Scripture. In fact, I don't see that in Scripture. Find you someone that you're spiritually compatible with first, that you're attracted to in all ways that you should be attracted to that person. And then pray and make your choice. And don't get hung up on the one. Let me give you, real quickly, a couple more. This next verse is, is, is number one verse for me on, on spiritual warfare. And you would expect that if someone that is not real bent out of shape about it. But James 1 is a foundational verse for the way that I understand dealing with the enemy. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil nor does he tempt anyone. Okay, now we continue. But, but listen, here it is now. But each person is tempted when the devil comes. Well, that's not what it says. Each person is tempted and dragged away by their own evil desires and then enticed and then tempted. What is the function of the temptation? their own evil desires. If that desire to do evil is not there, he can't tempt me. There's, he only puts his finger on areas that he knows I struggle with. So my prayer should be, God, would you take this desire for fill in the blank? 
God, would you take this away from me? Because if that desire is gone, then that enticement will be gone as well. And he cannot put his finger on anything that I don't already have an evil desire for. That's really profound. It really is. And it's not just because I'm preaching. It's because that's what the Bible says. So when I became a Christian, I had a tremendous compulsion to gamble. I loved it. I was pretty good at it. And I, but I just knew it wasn't Christian, even though I couldn't find a thou shalt not gamble in the Bible. But I would walk the, hall, the streets of Danville, Illinois, and I said, God, you've got to take this away from me because you know I'm going to fall to this because I had this desire. And slowly over time, probably a function of a lot of things, that desire is gone. And he, I don't even think about it now. I live closer to casinos and that I ever have. There's nothing there for me. Now, there are other areas. But that desire is no longer, it used, I used to walk, I can remember walking the streets in Danville, Illinois at night and praying to God, you've got to take it away from me. Sometime it happened. I don't know if it was a direct moment, but it happened. So it's not a desire, so I can't be enticed. What's your desire? And whatever it is, that's what you pray against. Now, there's some desires he'll never take away from us. Most men in here struggle sexually to keep it within the bounds of what God wants. It's a common denominator for most men. Now, God is never going to take our sexual drive away from us because that's part and parcel of being married. But, but through prayer, and yes, through discipline, and yes, sometimes through gripping our, gritting our teeth, and through accountability, through an appropriate, open, and honest discussion with your wife, that can be kept in the right bounds. But it's like he'll never take that away because that's part and parcel of who we are. Gambling's not part and parcel of who I am. You're enticed only by something that's already inside of you that should not be there. Ask God to take that away. That's why we're holiness people. That's why we're holiness people. Because we believe God can do a work deep, deep down in us. At that very decision-making place in us. Call it whatever you want. But we believe God's arm is not shortened. And he can get way down in there. My last verse and we're, go- we're done. James 4, 7 says, submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. What does resist mean, Mark? Well, that's another sermon, but... You pray, you have accountability, you pray against those evil desires, you don't give the devil a foothold. Why did, listen, I'm already late. Why did, why, this is, this is, this is really good. Why did the devil come to Jesus? Could have come to Jesus at any time. He came to Jesus because there was a little foothold there. Now you have to, don't go all the way and say Jesus gave it to him, but Jesus was fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. He was weak. It was a time of vulnerability. It was a time when he could fall. Now there's plenty of other times that we, by our poor choices, give the devil that foothold. We invite him in. And the rest is history. I've tried today. If you've got some people that deny the existence of the unseen world, and there are some people that see the unseen world under every rock. I've tried to land here, and I'm sure I did that not well. And, And I'm sure there are things I should have said that I left out. But I want you to know 
that in your fight for your family, there's an unseen battle going on because the family is at the core of where discipleship happens, at the core where disciples are made. And we must resist him through all the means of grace that God gives us. And the promise is he will flee. You know what the Bible says? I think in Luke's, I think, I'm not 100% sure. I think it's in Luke's account of the temptation of Jesus, not Matthew's, in Luke's. It says the devil left Jesus for a more opportune time. When there's another time that he may just open the door for me and give me a foothold. When there's another time when I can find him vulnerable. Church, don't give him a foothold. Subject yourselves to God. Resist the devil. And the promise is he will flee. I wish I could tell you that's easy. Uh, Prayer ABC. For some of us, we've given such a foothold that it's 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 hard and it's a long process to call out. I know that. But the promise is still there. And I believe with all my heart that his arm is not shortened and he can take from you whatever you ask him to take. And if you truly mean it, and then don't respond by opening that door again and giving him a foothold. Our servers are coming to the table. Father, your son Jesus modeled this for us on the cross. It was truth, truth, truth that combated the lie, lie, lie. And Father, I can't combat lies with truth unless I know the truth. So I pray today for some people here, this has been just another day of them learning the truth. And now they'll leave here with more of an arsenal to resist. Because some of the enemy's lies have been exposed. Father, we don't understand a whole lot on this unseen world. And Father, to be quite honest with you, I don't want to understand a lot because I want to keep my eyes focused more on you than what's going on in the unseen world. But Father, even through me being naive and ignorant about some of that, would you take a pure heart that just says, I want to stay so focused on you and I don't want to have to worry about all of what the enemy's doing. I want to stand on the truth. I want to resist. I don't want to give him a foothold. Give me grace for all that to happen in my life. In Jesus' name, amen.